Good morning, Good Shepherd. I'm Talbot Davis. I'm the pastor here, and whether you're live stream or live at our Moss Road campus, always, always, always so glad to be able to connect with you and to be able to, uh, what a privilege to be on this platform and to give messages based on God's Word that, uh, that I hope intersect with your lives. And we are winding up this series. It's been called Out of Step, and it has come from the book of Daniel, who for a number of reasons that you will see was really out of step in the environment that he found himself. Today's message is called Once in a Lifetime, and it comes from Daniel chapter 6. So if you have your, your Bible with you, locate Daniel 6. Some of you have one that looks like this. It looks like a book. Even though it's not a book, it's a library, and others of you have it loaded on your phone. Either way is fine. And if you don't have it either place or either way, the words will be up on the screen at just the right time. Because we, we really, we at Good Shepherd... We're just so passionate about you all having your own encounter with the Bible when we gather together. Not just that you take my word for it, but that together we're able to journey into the marvelous world contained in the Bible. Because we believe that not only is it a library, not book is library, and in the book of Daniel, by the way, we're in a history section of the library from about 2,600 years ago. So ancient, ancient history, way before Jesus appeared on earth. But the other thing that we believe about the biblical library is, is that, and, and you may not believe this yet, you, you may still be thinking about it, or when I say what I'm going to say, you're going to be like, hallelujah, thank you that somebody still believes this. Wherever you are on that continuum, we just want to be honest with the kind of church that we are. And it's this, that we in leadership believe there's no other library like this one that God breathed his life into its words. He put his truth onto its pages. The Bible really is inspired, eternal, and true. And because we believe that in leadership at this place, we do something kind of unusual. And some of you overachievers have already beaten me to the punch. We lift it up. And if you've not been here before, you haven't tuned in before, and there's phones and Bibles in the air, and you're just like, that is strange. We admit it. But we've come to the place where, yeah, this is a little bit strange, but we believe this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community. We're a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be let loose in our lives. Amen? And before I say another word, let's pray. So have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. For you are the potter and I am the clay. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have uh, noticed that over the last couple of years, I, I've noticed something interesting in the world of sports journalism, especially the kind of sports journalism as they practice on television. And here's this thing that I have noticed. And in the aftermath of a big game or a, or a championship or a, an, an epic kind of moment, and this is true of you know all the major sports. It happens in football and it happens in basketball and baseball and tennis, all the major sports. And, and the reporter will go to the victorious team or the victorious athlete, and they will always ask the same question, always, always, always. They always say, how does it feel? And then they always ask, Describe to us what this once-in-a-lifetime moment is like. How does it feel? And tell us about your once-in-a-lifetime 
moment. Of course, for Tom Brady, it tells about your seventh in a lifetime moment, but that's another sermon for another time, I, I guess. And it's, it's really kind of a nice question, even though it's a little bit tedious, the, the, the question, but because it lets you know just how much people want to hang on to those moments of great euphoria and those moments of great buzz and those moments of great accomplishment. You know, what, what does this once in a lifetime moment of winning that batting title or, or securing the Heisman Trophy or winning a Super Bowl or, or becoming the state champion of ten, Texas in tennis when you're 17, what is that, what is, what is that once in a lifetime moment feel like? But take it beyond sports. Because there's more and, and there's better when you hold that grandchild for the first time. When you earn the college degree. When you get that promotion at work. When you write the check or submit the payment and you pay off that house and it no longer belongs to the bank but it's all yours free can I hear an amen for that all yours free and clear when you get baptized into the faith and you go public with declaring that you belong to Jesus when you launch into a new arena of ministry in your life believing that you yeah you have the chops you have the ability you have the god given talent to influence the next generation these are these are these once in a lifetime moments that if you could you would capture them in a bottle so that you could go back and revisit them time after time after time and i know you feel this way about these moments because I see that so many of you have them as the screensavers on your phone so that you can go back and you can look at that perfect wedding day or you can look at that house that you paid off or that new car that, that you got or that great moment when you got that degree. These once in a lifetime moments that we want to hang on to and we want to celebrate. And, and as long as we're thinking about these kind of moments, can we agree together that Spending the evening with a, you wonder where I'm going with that. Spending the evening with a pride of lions and emerging from that night unbitten and unscratched and unscathed, that that would qualify. That if you ever stuck in a cave with a pride of lions and you survive to see the next morning, that you are very well justified for saying, well, I know, I now know what my once in a lifetime moment is. Because that's what happened to Daniel, who is the hero of the book of, you can do better than that. that will, that's what happened to Daniel, who is the hero of the book of, Yes, so much better. And Daniel has been this character whom we have been following over the last several weeks together. And Daniel is this guy who is out of step with the culture that surrounds him. But he, he discovers that the, the out of stepper he becomes, the more in tune with God he grows. And the thing about Daniel's story, and if, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, that's great. You may remember. And if you haven't, we're so glad that you are here today, either live stream or live. But the, he, he's really had some miracles have, have characterized the book of Daniel. There was, there was a disembodied hand like a human tarantula writing on the wall last week. And a couple of weeks before that, there was Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and, and they survive a night in a, in a fiery furnace. And, and sometimes 
when we think of the book of Daniel and when we think of Old Testament history in, in general, we get so wrapped up in the miracle that we fail to see the real powers in the mundane. They were so attracted to what's spectacular, we sometimes miss out on the, the meaning and the power of the regular. And that's really the case in, in the story that we're fixing to look at today, where Daniel gets into the lion's den. And, and, and here's Daniel's situation in about 2500, 2600 BC. Daniel is part of a wave of exiled Jews, men and, and women from Jerusalem, who have worshiped for centuries more or less faithfully one God. And yet they've been conquered by a people called Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq, they transported the best and the brightest of the Jews across the desert to go serve as slaves and exiles in Babylon, which is approximately where Baghdad would be today. And what you need to know is that Babylon then was like a, a, a place where they worship multiple gods and goddesses. It was like going to a multiplex theater religion in, in Babylon. Like one time you go worship that God, and then the next time you go to church, you worship that goddess, and the next time you go to church, you worship that God. So multiple gods and multiple goddesses, and Daniel, because he's a one God guy, this puts him always at odds and always out of step with the culture that surrounds him. And then as we get to Daniel 6, there's been a shift. There's a new sheriff in town because at the very end of chapter 5, the, the nation Persia, which was adjacent and still is adjacent to Babylon, only today Persia is called Iran, adjacent to Iraq. And at the end of, of chapter 5, that Persia has conquered the conquering Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belshazzar, these, these kings of the Babylonians, they're, they're dead and gone and buried. And there's a new king town. His name is Darius. And so there's an, but, but the, the one thing in common is that the Persians who've defeated the Babylonians, they too, they worship a whole handful of gods and goddesses. But, but Daniel's got to be wondering, because by, by the time we get to Daniel 6, he's an old man. I mean, this is several generations after his story began. And he's got to be wondering, well, well, is my new boss Darius, is, can it, is he going to be like my old boss Nebuchadnezzar, or is it, is it going to be better? And, and, and apparently, Darius is kind of fond of Daniel, because he says, Daniel, you're a star. You don't have to live like a refugee anymore. And he gives him this great promotion to become a governor. Look at what it says in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 3. It says this, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps, and a satrap is like a governor, by his exceptional qualities that the king, and this is Darius, planned to set him over the, in the whole kingdom. So he's going to be like the governor of governors. He's going to get a promotion that's going to elevate him above all of his colleagues, none of whom are Jewish. Well, when they hear about his impending promotion, they're, they're just racked with jealousy, all of his colleagues, and they come up with a plan. They come up with a plan that is both devious and brilliant. 
And it's a plan that's going to get Daniel killed if they have their way. Look at what they say in verses 4 and 5. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. So we know Daniel's getting ready to get a big promotion. We don't like it. We got to find charges against him to get him out of a job and hopefully out of his life in the conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, remember his colleagues, his peers who are jealous, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Underline that, the law of his God. The only way we can get this guy is through his consistency. We know he's a one God worshiper and we're a multi-God community. And he's so faithful and so reliable and so consistent. Some way we got to be able to trap him doing what he always does, which is worshiping his God. See, Daniel, Daniel's so out of step. He, he's so vulnerable. Daniel is like, he's like a pastry chef at a gluten-free convention. <laughs> or, or he's like, he's wearing a Duke shirt on the campus of Chapel Hill. He, he is out of step with the world that surrounds him. And so his colleagues, none of whom are Jewish, all of whom know how vulnerable he is, they have this incredibly devious plan that they present to Darius. And remember, as I read you this plan, remember, Darius likes Daniel. He's getting ready to give him a big promotion. And look what happens in verse 7. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors. That's everybody except Daniel. We have all agreed that the king, this is Darius, should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or any human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty Darius, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty Darius, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Verse 9. So Darius put the decree in writing. Darius is like, oh, how sweet. Y'all want... Y'all want it so that I'm the only one who's worshipped? Okay, you twisted my arm, and, and I'm going to sign this into the law. And, and remember, he likes Daniel, and he has no idea he's being fooled into securing Daniel's death, which really makes you wonder, hey, if he's that dumb, why would you want to pray to him in the first place? But I guess that's another sermon for another time. And so Darius signs this degree for the next decree. The next 30 days, if anybody worships any God other than me, they're going to become cat food for lions. And so Daniel is in a dilemma because as a Jew, he can't pray to Darius. He can't, his very identity as a Jew is that you shall have no other gods before me. And so look how Daniel handles the dilemma in verse 10 of chapter 6. It says this, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Now these open windows 
been the source of a, a, a lot of speculation. Did, did Daniel open them on purpose to ensure that he would get caught? Was he being defiant? Maybe. One, one thing, whether we don't know for sure whether he was doing that in defiance or not, we do know he wasn't hiding. We do know that he didn't read the decree and say, Oh, Lord, I better be really careful. I might even offer a quick prayer to Darius just so I get caught doing that in public. No, 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 no. Look what the rest of verse 10 says. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, comma, just as he had done before. Underline that. Just as he had done before the author of Daniel, who was inspired by God and is brilliant, he's building this pattern, this pattern of Daniel's consistency and predictability. And look what happens in verse 11. Then these men, well, which men? The, the men who've set the trap for Daniel. The men who fooled their king into signing that law. These men went as a group and they found Daniel. Now, wait, 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 wait. What would your enemies find? If you, I don't have enemies. Yeah, you do. You just don't know it. What, what would your enemies find if they spied on you? What would your enemies find you doing if you were doing what you always do? And some of you have kind of a sinking feeling in your stomach right now because it'd be, oh, they would find me vegging out or having a too few many prescription pills or surfing the internet or Surfing the internet, surfing the internet. What would your enemies do if they spied on you doing what you always do? What would they see? And it's so interesting how Daniel gets caught. And look how he gets caught in the last part of, of, of verse 11. Daniel praying and asking God for help. Oh, I love it. He, he gets spied on. He doesn't know he's being spied on, but they catch him doing what he's always done, praying and asking God for help. And I love what this is showing us about a crisis. I don't know if you know this or not, but Daniel gets faced with this crisis, this new law that is a Jew. He can't possibly obey and he doesn't have to alter his routine one little bit. He's able to survive because he's built these patterns. He's built this strength. He's built this consistency, not when there was a crisis, but when there was a calm. I don't know if you know this or not, Good Shepherd, but what you do in the calm determines how you do in the storm. That when the storm comes and you try decide then, well, now I need to get all faithful, then it's usually too late. Daniel's building all of these practices and all of this consistency so that when the storm comes or when the lions open their mouths, he doesn't have to conjure faith out of nowhere. It's been with him all along. I love, as, as, as exciting as, as Daniel in the lion's den are, verses 10 and verses 11 are that much more thrilling to me. Look what happens at verse 13 where it says this. Then they said to the king, meaning the, the people who'd set the trap for Daniel. They said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, one of those out of step, one God worshipers, who uh, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three 
times a day. You see the pattern being built. Daniel still prays. He does what he's always does. Three times a day, the law of the Lord, this author, is building his argument so, so skillfully. Well, Darius at this stage is sort of trapped. He likes Daniel, but he can't go against the law that he has signed. He, he has to order Daniel's execution. Even if he has to do it reluctantly, he's got to do it. And that's what he does. And, and look at the words that he utters in verse 16. Look at how Darius sort of bids his farewell to Daniel. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And then the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve, what? continually, not occasionally, not randomly, not when it's convenient, not when you're in emergency, continually, not when you need help. You serve him even when you don't need any help. May that God whom you serve continually, may he rescue you. And then in this moment of high, high drama, Darius does something else in verse 17. Look at what it says. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. We're going to roll the stone over the den where the lions are. I'm sealing it with my signet ring. There's no way this guy is going to, as much as I don't want to do it, there's no way this guy's going to get out of this night alive. And, and what follows is so interesting the narrator of, of the book of Daniel, he tells us what a long night that, that Darius has and he, he spares us the details of what Daniel's night was like. It's kind of an interesting shift. And, and, and when morning comes, look what Darius does again in verse 20 this time where it says this. When he, meaning Darius, came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, the servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, what? Continually been able to rescue you from the lions. Daniel, may, may your God, who you think about all the time, who you worship all the time, who's at the front of your mind all the time, did that God rescue you overnight? And again, it, I, I, I've told some of you this before and others of you might not have heard it, but the Bible, books of the Bible, they were written before you could write in all caps. They were written before you could have bold and italics. The only way for an author to emphasize something is to repeat it, to tell you again and again and again and again. And so the author of Daniel, by, by telling you things like, the God who you worship, how often? Continually. You, you pray three times a day and three times a day. And the only way we're going to catch him is something to do with the law of his God. And Daniel continued to pray as he'd always done. It's like the, the author, pay attention to this. Notice this. And when you notice that pattern and you see where the real energy in the story is, it's not in the lions. It's in the preparation for the lions. It's not in the liftoff. It's in the runway. And it's so unmistakable that, that the climax of the story is actually a little bit anticlimactic. Because look at verses 21 and 22, where this is what we read. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel. 
and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty, he says. So, so what do we make of this story? What are those of us who the outer a step we are with our culture, the more in tune with our God we become? What are those of us who long for those once in a lifetime moments that we can bottle up and keep and treasure? What do we take from this story in which the runway is actually more miraculous than the liftoff? Here it is. That if a reporter had come up to Daniel as he emerged out of the lion's den and and put a microphone in his face and said, tell us how you feel in this once-in-a-lifetime moment. Daniel would have said this, your once-in-a-lifetime comes from what you do all the time. Yeah. Daniel's breakthrough came from his consistency. The only reason Daniel ever has anything spectacular is because he pays such remarkable attention to what is regular. The story lets us know that anything that happens in our lives that feels like a once in a lifetime, it was all prepared by those things that we do all the time. It's like that pastor that I heard say that one time, successful people do consistently what everyone else does occasionally. Successful people do consistently what everyone else does occasionally. Yeah, your once-in-a-lifetime moment comes. Not because you got lucky. Not because you dreamed up faith when you really need it. But it comes from what you do all the time. That batting title that that baseball player won... It was one in the batting cage. The Super Bowl that the football team won, it was one in the weight room. The tennis tournament you win, it was one on all those Saturday morning at 7 a.m. practices. That house that you paid off, you didn't pay it off because you won the lottery. You paid off. Because for a long time, you paid extra every single month. That degree that you got from college, and you're the first one in the history of your family ever to do it. You got that degree, not because you crammed the night before graduation, but because you worked on it slowly and steadily all four years or longer that it took. That beautiful wedding day, that pretty wedding day that you had. Oh, it's just a perfect wedding day. Hey, that happened. Not because you just had a perfect wedding day, but because as part of the beautiful marriage movement, you learned and you realized that, that you prepare yourself before you ever promise yourself. That baby that you cradle, come on moms, do babies ever come before labor? No. Babies come after labor. The once in a lifetime comes from what you do all the time. That friend I have at this church who once a year will send me a photo of his anniversary chip in AA, marking yet another year of sobriety. He got to those years of sobrieties, not in one giant leap, but in 12 massively small steps. Your once in a lifetime comes from what you do 
all the time. And even those areas of life that, that we might deem more religious, more spiritual, though here's something free for you, everything that I've been talking about, whether it's your money or your marriage or your education or your job, it's all spiritual. Can I hear an amen for that? But even those more sort of more church-specific, when, when, you, when you lead someone to faith, you have a one and you lead them to faith, it's not because you all of a sudden got really smart and had all the right words. It's because you were sowing that seed in that soil for a long time. When the Bible, when, when the Bible stops being an alien landscape, oh, I have no idea what that's about. I have no idea how that comes together. And it instead becomes actually the Word of God shaping you and molding you and forming you. That doesn't happen overnight either. Your faith, your faith is never microwaved. It's always crock-potted. And when you begin your days in the Word and not in the world, which we're going to give you an opportunity to sign up for that in, in, in just a few minutes, you begin your days that way, ah, sooner rather than later, the, the Word will feel like it is your home. It will not feel alien. It will not feel odd. It will feel like, how in the world did I ever live without this shaping my way of viewing the world and viewing my life? And you'll, it happens when you... When you go to your small group, your life group, or your grow group, even when you don't want to. When you pray, even when you don't feel like it. When you attend worship, even when it's inconvenient. And by the way, if you're ever tempted to think that coming to worship and sitting under teaching doesn't really matter, Listen to this. It was a letter to the editor of a newspaper a couple of generations ago, back when we had newspapers that had letters to editors. And here's what it said. Dear sirs, it seems that ministers feel their sermons are very important and spend a great deal of time preparing them. Yet I have been attending church for 30 years, hearing 3,000 sermons, but I can't remember a single one. I wonder if the minister's time might be better spent on something else. And I'm like, mind your own business, loser. <laughs> well, for weeks, responses poured into that letter to the editor. But then with one letter, all those responses came to a stop. Dear sir, I've been married for 30 years. During that time, I've eaten 32,850 meals, mostly prepared by my wife. But I couldn't tell you the menu of a single meal. And yet I have the distinct impression that without them... I would have starved to death a long time ago. Touche. Your once in a lifetime comes from what you do all the time. And I know there's people here today, people tuning in today, and you're like, okay, I believe you. I got it. I got it. But, but how, Talbot? Where is the power? Where in the world would the power come from? Because I'm naturally sort of scatterbrained. I lack focus. I lack, I lack discipline. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I'm all spontaneous. I can't do anything planned. Where does the power come from from any of this? Such a great question. Because do you remember? Do you remember that moment of high drama in, in verse 17 of chapter 6? Look at it again, what Darius does to the tomb. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it 
with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Huh. Reminds me of another stone. Rolled over another opening, sealed with another seal. Because look at what Matthew chapter 27 and verses 65 and 66 says. Take a guard, Pilate, another king. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the tomb, on the stone, and posting the guard. Another tomb, absolutely powerless to stop the move of God. Another stone that when it was rolled to the side revealed the victory of God. And that one who was alive that morning remains alive today. And he is the one inhabiting this community. And he is the one empowering each one of you who feels like I can't do it. I can't be consistent. I can't be steady. And he's the one saying, you can't, but I can. Because our God who is still alive, not only is he still alive, but he's still good. And how often is he still good? All the time and all the time he is good your once in a lifetime comes from what he does through you all the time let's pray so father thank you for your goodness today thank you that you are the one who will give strength to our scattered minds and our weak knees and that you who were let loose on that Easter morning. You're still at loose in this world, dangerously empowering us for your will and your way. Thank you, Lord, that we got some once-in-a-lifetime moments ahead of us built on what we do all the time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone says, amen.